Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, My name is Mason Brown. I'm one of the pastors here at Rio, and I'm excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, If you've been here with us, uh, you then know that we've been, uh, over the past couple weeks, we've been studying the life of Jesus as we find it uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, But before we continue in that series, uh, I have a confession to make. Uh, I don't know if you know this about me, but one of the many things that I love are movies. Uh, Anyone else in that same boat? Some? Okay, there we go. Yeah, I I don't care. Like, seriously, I love movies. I could seriously watch a movie every day of the week, and I would be perfectly content with life. Babies crying, kids refusing to sleep, don't care. If I get to watch a movie that day, it is a good day. And I don't care if if it's an action or a thriller. Um, And I'm just going to say it uh, because I'm really, I'm not afraid to admit it. I even love, get this, romantic comedies. I mean, you've got mail. When Harry met Sally, 10 things I hate about you. You just can't beat it. Those are some of my favorites. I know. I know that looking out at many of you, I think you just put me in a box. Um, (laughs) It's okay. I'll live with it. Um, I'm going to cry about it later, um, but it's all good. Uh, Anyways, I I share that with you because as you watch a movie, no matter what type of genre it might be, there's normally a point within that film where the main character has to decide whether or not they're going to go all in. And so, for example, in the movie uh, The Lion King, which is a classic, right? Simba, after running away from home, eventually reaches this, this, this tipping point, this fork in the road where he has to decide, will he remain in the jungle with Timon and Pumbaa or will he return home to Pride Rock, right? And as we all know, what does he do? He, he goes all in and he returns home to Pride Rock in order to restore his father's kingdom and become the rightful king. You see, in our movies today, there, there, there's normally this, this tipping point, this fork in the road where the main character has to decide whether or not they're going to go all in. And as true as that may be within our, within our films today, it, it is true for us as well. This morning, as we continue in our study, we will see that the question, who is Jesus, it creates this, this natural fork in the road where we, at one point or another, have to decide whether or not we are going to go all in and believe in what Jesus says about himself. And so who is he, right? Because that's the million-dollar question. Well, if you uh, went out into our street today and, and you asked that very question, who is Jesus, uh, you will find um, that the majority of people will actually speak well of him, right? Back in uh, 2017, uh, Barna Research asked this very question, And they found, get this, that 93% of Americans used words such as accepting, brave, kind, warm, and gracious to describe his character. And so generally speaking, if you went out and you asked that question, you'll find that more often than not, people will say that Jesus was what? He was a good guy, right? He, He did a lot of good things. And then on top of that, people will typically add that he was a great moral teacher, I mean, he taught us that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to pray for those who persecute us, that the first will be last and the last will be first. Things that that Christians and non-Christians would both go, yeah, I mean, that's good stuff. However, it kind of stops there, doesn't it? Because it's there where the path starts to diverge. People will say that he was a great moral teacher. 
As someone who lived in what he believed in, he was intentional in helping others. He was a good guy. But see, here's the thing. Jesus, he never gave us the option to assess him in that way. He can't just be a good guy and a great moral teacher because the things that he said and did took that option away from us. Think about it with me for a moment. If you've been here with us so far in this study, we have seen on more than in one occasion that Jesus, he has claimed to be what? He's claimed to be God. Take that in for a moment. That is no small claim. It puts him in a completely separate category. In Mark chapter 2, right from the start, he, he heals the paralyzed man of all of his sins, past, present, and future. And rightly, his, his enemy said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And the answer is no one. But Jesus, he took to himself that authority and he did the miracle to prove that he had the authority to forgive sins. He called himself the Lord of the Sabbath, which was an incredible claim to make within that Jewish context. Later on, he'll say things like, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus, he goes back into the Old Testament and he takes God's covenantal name, I am, and he attaches it to himself saying, look, I'm not just some dude, but I am the one who the prophets spoke of. I am the promised Messiah, but he also uses it to speak to his deity. Eventually, he will say things like, I and my father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the father. And many other such claims. Listen to what C.S. Lewis, who was a professor at Oxford, said regarding this very question. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. And this is what people often say about him. He says, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And C.S. Lewis continues on and says, but that is one thing that we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. At the end of the day, C.S. Lewis says, look, because of the things that Jesus both said and did, we really only have three options that we can choose from in answering the question, who is Jesus? He is either a lunatic, a liar, or he's Lord. And C.S. Lewis wasn't the first person to actually think of it. It's actually here in our text today. As we jump into Mark chapter 3, we will see those three characterizations of Jesus. Lunatic, liar, and Lord. And as we do, the question that I want you to consider is who do you believe Jesus is? Who do you believe he is? And then secondly, in light of your answer, how will you then respond? We pick up our study in, in Mark chapter 3, and starting in verse 20, it says this. 
Then he, Jesus, went home and the crowd gathered again. And I want to stop there for a moment because I think it's important to note that this crowd that has once again, as we're told, has gathered around Jesus is not just a handful of people. At this point in time within the narrative, within the story, Jesus' popularity is at an all-time high. And people are, are beginning to hear about this man who not only teaches with authority, but as we've seen, he's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. And so, as you can imagine, the news of that slowly begins to spread. So much so that back in verse 7, we are told a great crowd followed Jesus. And where did this crowd come from? Well, it came from Galilee and Judah and Jerusalem and Idumea, which was close to 120 miles away. And from beyond the Jordan, from the coastal cities of Tyre and Sidon. And so most commentators insist that tens of thousands of people had made the journey to see Christ. Think about that. Tens of thousands of people had made the journey to come and see, see Christ. Which, by the way, was an adventure in and of itself, right? I mean, they didn't have any modern form of technology. They didn't have AC, which is probably the biggest bummer of it all. And many of these people, most likely, they walked for days on end in the heat of the sun. Maybe some of them had the luxury of riding on a camel. Which, by the way, just from personal experience, is not worth it. <laughs> not enjoyable. If you get to go to the Holy Land, just bypass it. Save your money. Do something else. But nevertheless, this crowd would not be stopped. And while some of them came to see and discover for themselves who this man was, that everyone was talking about, and many of them came seeking some type of miracle or deliverance or um, some type of healing. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. People all over hear about this man who is able to do the unimaginable. He's able to restore broken creation back to its original design. Not only is he able to forgive sin, but there are multiple accounts that he's healing people. Imagine the scene with me, because honestly, I think if we were there, we would weep. Family members and friends are carrying their loved ones, their babies to the feet of Jesus. The disease, those who have been ostracized from community life since they've been deemed unclean, are walking who knows how far in order to get to Jesus. And on more than one occasion, the sheer size of this crowd, uh, as you can imagine, it, it created some unique logistical challenges, right? Because let's just be honest, people who have traveled from a far distance, they will, will not be denied. You're, you're going to go and see them, right? They will not be denied. In verse 9, we even see at one point, this crowd became so big and was pressing in on Jesus that Jesus even asked one of his disciples to fetch him a boat so that the crowd would not crush him. And then in verse 20, we see that the crowd is back at it again. If we continue on, it says, Then he, Jesus, went home, presumably to get some rest, and understandably so. However, the crowd gathered again so that they couldn't even eat. And so since the crowd's needs are relentless, and Jesus' compassion is relentless, they match together. It would create some staggering long days, some staggering long nights where he and his disciples would not be able to eat or even rest. I mean, that was their lifestyle. And it's at this point in time where Jesus' family, they, they get word of this and they say, enough is enough. In verse 21, it says, and when his family 
which most commentators believe refers to both his mother as well as his brothers, since Jesus, and near the end of this passage, as we'll see, will mildly rebuke both of them. It says, when his family heard about all that was happening, to who he claimed to be, to almost getting crushed by the crowd, to not taking time to eat throughout the day, I mean, that is crazy. And so it says that they went out to seize him, the language of arrest, for they were saying that he is out of his mind. Take that in for a moment. This is Jesus' own family that we're talking about. And look, we, we, we know at this point in time, we know from John 7 that Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. Throughout his entire ministry, his brothers rejected who he claimed, claimed to be and eventually watched him get mocked and, and flogged and even die on a cross to what they thought was a meaningless cause until he rose from the grave where he specifically revealed himself to his brother James, who would eventually become a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. We also believe that the epistle of Jude was written by one of Jesus' half-brothers, and so after the resurrection, they believed. But at this point in time, they think he's crazy. They think he's literally lost it. He's a lunatic. And you might be thinking, well, well what about Mary, Jesus' mother? And in truth, I I don't know what's going on with Mary. I mean, we know from Scripture that she knew that she was a virgin when Jesus was conceived and born. There is no doubt about that. She knew what the angel said, and she believed it. She took hold of it in faith. She believed it in her heart. In Luke 1, she wrote the Magnificat, which is beautiful, where she praises God and she rejoices that she has the great privilege of giving birth to the promised Messiah. There's no doubt about that. She believed it. But listen, people are weak. John the Baptist, the man that we looked at a couple weeks ago, and pointed at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, questioned whether or not He was, in fact, the promised Messiah near the end of his life. He was holding on with his fingertips, praying that he was, in fact, the one who he claimed to be. Peter, during Jesus' trial, called down curses on himself and publicly denied him. Which, as an aside, I want to say, man, praise God that it is his right hand that upholds us. And we are saved not because of the strength or the intensity of our faith, but we are saved solely because of the object of our faith, which is, which is Christ. He is faithful, even when we are faithless. And so while we know that Mary ends up a vigorous, healthy believer in Jesus, I don't know what's going on at this point in time. All we are told is the family thinks he's crazy, and so they come up with a plan to, to go down to Capernaum with the sole intention of forcibly hauling him back to Nazareth, his hometown, where he could, in theory live out this this crazy lifestyle, at least underneath their care. Because from their perspective, no sane man would hang out with the type of people that Jesus was hanging out with. I mean, he was hanging out with outcasts, such as tax collectors and sinners, people that were deemed culturally unclean. No sane man would, would willingly live such a radical lifestyle where he's almost crushed by the onset of the crowd where he's so focused on serving the needs of those around him that he's unable to eat or even rest. I mean, that is crazy. 
Who would do such a thing? In Luke 6, which is the parallel passage to this account, it even mentions that Jesus, he was staying up all night in prayer, which is to them probably absurd. His religious zeal was far too radical for their comfort. And so their family, they conclude that, man, he's out of his mind. He is crazy. And this has also become the charitable opinion of many today. People will say this. They will say that Jesus, he was a good guy, perhaps even the greatest of men among men. But he was obviously confused. Albert uh, Schwitzer, uh, in his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, mentions that Jesus was in a messianic delusion, attempting to turn messianic delusion, attempting to turn the wheel of history only then to have it turn and crush him. In other words, he was crazy. He was out of his mind. He was a lunatic. And interestingly enough, this is the exact same phrase that have many, many have received in following in Jesus' footsteps. In Acts chapter, uh, or Acts chapter 26, Paul This man who forsook everything in order to share this this life-transforming message of hope, that there is life beyond the grave, preaches before Festus, the Roman governor. And you know what Festus cries out? It's really interesting. He says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Exact same phrase. Same phrase in the Greek as well, which is awesome. Similar verdicts have also been rendered over people such as uh, Luther and Wesley and Bunyan. And one of my favorite missionaries, uh, William Borden, who inherited his family's vast fortune. However, he forsook it all in order to go to China to preach the gospel to unreached Muslims. The Chicago Tribune, when they were writing this story about him, they said that he was throwing his life away. He's crazy. Far too radical. Listen to what J.R. Miller says. And just to warn you, it's a little convicting, so I'll let him say it. Speaking of Jesus, he says this. They could account for his unconquerable zeal only by, then, only by concluding that he was insane. We hear much of the same kind of talk in modern days when some devoted follower of Christ utterly forgets self and love for his master. People say... He must be insane. They think every man is crazy who religion kindles into a, into a sort of unusual fervor, who grows more earnest than the average Christian in work for the master. That is a good sort of insanity. It is a sad pity that is so rare. If there are more of it, there would be not so many unsaved souls dying under the very shadow of our churches. It would not be so hard to get missionaries and money to send the gospel to the dark continents. There would, be not, there would not be so many empty pews in our churches, so many long pauses in our prayer meetings, so few to teach in our Sunday schools. It would be a glorious thing if all Christians were beside themselves as the master was, or as Paul was. It is far worse insanity, which in this world never gives a thought to the eternal world, which, moving continually among lost men, never pities them nor thinks of their lost condition, nor puts forth any effort to save them, it is easier to keep a cool head and a colder heart and to give ourselves no concern about perishing souls. Wow. Take that in for a moment. 
As Pastor Kent Hughes says, if Christ is who he says he is, meaning the one who forsook all things and took on what many even called foolishness, the cross, so that he could have you and you could have him, then the sanest thing in the world is to follow him. And if Christ calls us to total commitment, which he does, anything else is crazy. And look, that doesn't necessarily mean, right, that you, starting tomorrow or even today, that you have to sell everything that you have, right, and hop on a plane to go to some unreached country. I mean, it might, if that's where the Lord is leading you. However, it does mean that for us who, who have claimed Christ as our own, we need to get off the couch of comfortability and go all in as we allow God's word by the power of his spirit to infiltrate and transform, not just this area of my life, that which I'm comfortable giving to him. No, 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 no. All areas of our life, from our finances to the relationships and the conversations that we have with those people, to saying no to sin, to turning the other cheek, to using the unique platform that God has given to us, not for our own fame or advancement, but for his glory, for his edification, to possibly even serving in the student ministry, even though you will get hit, hit in the face with a dodgeball. Just trust me on that. I spent many years, this face, numb, don't feel any pain. However, it'll all be worth it. Why? Because as the writer of Hebrews notes, we are living for a better country, a heavenly one. And so even though people might look at us and say, yo, 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 you need to chill out on this whole Jesus thing. Like enough is enough. Like I, I know that you're following, like you need to chill out. Even though people might say that to us, the most loving thing that we can do is not to chill out. Instead, we need to continue to be intentional in sharing the goodness of our God with everyone that the Lord has put within our life so that as people see us, they ultimately they see him. And so Jesus' family, they, they, they catch wind of all that's been taking place. And they, they instantly jump to the conclusion, he's insane. He's out of his mind. And if we continue on in verse 22, we then encounter the scribes who say that Jesus is not a lunatic, but a liar. It says, and the scribes who were the religious leaders of that day came down from Jerusalem. And so these guys are the top dogs. And it says that they were saying he's possessed by Beelzebul, the lord of the evil spirits. For it's by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And so the scribes, who by the way, don't refute any of the miraculous things that have taken place. Why? Well, because the Luther that was cleansed in Mark chapter 1. He's now, he's clean. He's walking around town. The, the paralytic that we encountered in Mark chapter 2, he's just, he's right next to him. He's like, look, I'm healed. The people who had an unclean and demonic spirit have now been set free. And so since they couldn't deny his power and they didn't want to accept him as God, they say that he's in cahoots with the devil, therefore making him a fraud and a deceiver as someone who's supremely evil. However, The scribe's charge didn't hold any water. It says, and Jesus, he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. From a, from a purely logical standpoint, Jesus says, look, what you are proposing makes no sense at all. If a kingdom goes at war with itself and wins, right, the kingdom ends. And if a family fights against itself and wins, there's no more family. And if Satan rises against Satan and defeats Satan, Satan's done. It's a devastating argument, but Christ is not finished. He continues on, and I love this. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And as you read that, if you're like me this week, I was like, what in the world is that about? And so in this parable, the strong man is Satan. And, and his house is the kingdom that he dominates here on this earth. And his goods are us who are held in bondage to our own sin and ultimately to death itself. However, Jesus says, look, through my incarnation, I have knocked down the door to the strong man's house. And when he, when he talks about binding him up, he's speaking about a specific historical event. He's talking about what was pictured for us in Mark chapter 1. Jesus says, look, don't you remember that Satan threw his best at me for 40 days of a multitude of temptations. However, I defeated him every time. I'm the stronger man. I've bound the enemy. And not only that, but I will publicly defeat him on the cross. And through my resurrection, the shackles that, that once held my beloved and their own sin and shame and ultimately to death itself, they've fallen off. For I have come to plunder and to set free all of those who call upon my name and draw near to me. And so church, if you have claimed Christ as your own, be encouraged. Seriously, be encouraged. Your salvation is a product of his plundering, not your own. It is by grace through faith in Christ, by the power of his spirit that he has set us free. However, I know some of you might be thinking, but, but Mason, there, there's no way that this God would do that for me. I, I've messed up too much. My addictions are, are too severe. My mistakes are just, there's a lot. Well, notice what Jesus says next. He continues on and he says this. He says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Whew. Take that in for a moment. Isn't that a great phrase? I love that line of scripture. Through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus, he settled the payment of all of your sins. Yes, even that one, the one that you're thinking of. He has settled the payment of your sin. He's washed it away through his blood, and he has given you his righteousness so that you may be reunited with your Father in heaven and receive the gift of life, life eternal. That is what he offers freely to each of us who take hold of him in faith. Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter, praise God. And this next part that we're about to read has often been uh, terribly misunderstood and ripped out of context. 
which unfortunately has, has led many uh, or some to, to much grief and confusion. And so I want to encourage you to stay with me. Jesus says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is uh, often referred to as the unforgivable sin. And so what is Jesus talking about here? And so I think it's important for us to first note what it's not. This unforgivable sin, this eternal sin that one is able to commit is not taking the Lord's name in vain. And though vile it may be, it's not some type of adultery or murder or even genocide. I mean, Jesus just said all sins, meaning if you repent of them, if you turn the other way, and if you take hold of him in faith, you will be what? You'll be forgiven. And so it's not that. His grace is enough for all of our sins. And so what is this thing that Jesus is talking about, this unforgivable sin? Well, very simply, it is the conscious ongoing, continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and the saviorhood of Jesus. It is the perversion in the heart that chooses to call light darkness and darkness light. I mean, that's what the scribes were doing, were they not? Look at the passage again. They were saying that the Holy Spirit's witness to Christ through his exorcisms and miracles were the works of who? Satan. And if their attitude had become permanent, fixed, they would have crossed that line and they would have committed this unforgivable sin because if you have consciously rejected your only hope in life and death, you then have no hope. And so if you're joining us this morning, you've heard this verse before and you're, you're, you're afraid, man, at some point you, you've committed this sin. Rest assured that the good news of the gospel is that all meaning all who repent of their sin, turn from it and take hold of Christ, will be what? Will be forgiven. Past, present, and future. John even notes that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not some. He doesn't put a condition on it. He says all. What Jesus is talking about here is not a one and done and you're out, but it's a continual fixed permanent rejection to who he claims to be. I mean, look at the life of Paul. At one point, he was a blasphemer. He rejected Jesus with such passion and with such an intensity that he made it his goal to extinguish Christianity altogether. But then he encountered the sweet embrace of grace and forgiveness that Jesus extends to all of us who call upon his name. And so I really do think that in love, Jesus comes to the scribes and he gives them as well as us this warning, whose arms are open wide and he's saying, guys, come to me. Repent of your sin. Don't believe this insidious lie. Instead, trust me and know that I've knocked down the door to the strong man's house. and I've come to not only set you free, but to give you the gift of life, life eternal. And so in this passage, we, we see that Jesus, his, his family says that he's a lunatic. The scribes say that he's a liar which then leaves us with the third option. He's Lord. In verse 31, it says, And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside the house, or outside, they sent to him and called him. 
And a crowd was sitting around him, Jesus, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And so Jesus' family, they, they show up because remember their plan was to take him back to Nazareth because they thought he was crazy. And so they show up to the house where Jesus is at and notice that they are on the outside of the house. That's important. And so what do they do? Well, since Jesus is inside the house, and since the crowd was so big, they they send forth a messenger to try to get his attention. And if we continue on, it says, and a crowd was sitting around him, meaning Jesus. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside. They're, They're seeking you. But then Jesus answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking about at those who who sat around him, who were doing what, by the way? They were drinking in his teaching. They weren't there to try to get something out of him, but simply to spend time with him, to hear about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus looks around and he answers the question by saying, here are my mother and my brothers, pointing to the crowd around him. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus, he completely redefines who's in the house and who is a part of the true family of God. For he says, whoever does God's will is my brother, sister, and mother. And so immediately the question is, well, what is God's will? Well, John 6 probably states it most clearly of all. It says, they came to Jesus and said, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. That is God's will, is in that case. Believe in me as your Lord and Savior. And this is the challenge that he gives to his biological family. To come out of the fog of partial unbelief into the full clear light of understanding his deity and his role as their savior. He's not some deluded lunatic. He's not an an evil liar, but he's Lord. This one who loves us so much that he willingly laid down his life and he paid the penalty for your sin. And he rose from the grave so that you, by faith, could be adopted into the family of God. And receive the gift of life, life eternal, not just here, but there as well. And Jesus' family would eventually come out of the fog and repent of their sin and take hold of him in faith. But what's your answer? As we close, I want to leave you with the two questions that we began with. And so first, who do you believe Jesus is? Because as C.S. Lewis once said, this question, who is Jesus, it creates this natural fork in the road. He's either a lunatic, a liar, or he's Lord. And so what's your answer? And then secondly, in light of your answer, how will you then respond? And maybe you're joining us this morning and you, you, you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if you do not, man, I urge you. I urge you, don't waste today. Draw near to Christ, this one who loves you so much, who laid his life down so that he could have you and you could have him. And if that is you this morning, man, please, please come forward. Let us talk to you about Jesus. Let us celebrate that with you. Let us pray for you. Or or maybe you're you're joining us this morning. You're like, man, I'm, I'm just not there yet. Like, I still have a lot of questions. I have questions about this, about who he is and actually... All, all of these things. And if that is you, man, again, come up, come up afterwards. 
We'd love to get to know you, hear some of those questions, process them with you. Or better yet, we, we want to invite you to join us for Alpha. Now, Alpha is a, it's a place where you can explore the Christian faith um, and ask genuine questions in a non-pressured, non-judgmental environment. And it meets this Thursday night, 7 p.m. And so we want to invite you to that. It meets here in the worship center. And so we would love for you to come forward. Let us talk to you or, or come to Alpha this Thursday night. And then lastly, if you're sitting here and you're like, man, I've, I've taken hold of Jesus. He is my Lord. And maybe for you, that's been for a year, maybe for 10 years, maybe for 15, 30 years. Well, if he is your Lord, I want to challenge you. Man, make him the center of your life. Would he become the fixed object in which everything else revolves around? In the same way that this crowd, who presumably probably had some other things they had to do that day. I mean, they had other work responsibilities. But in the same way that this crowd gathered around Jesus, just drinking in his teachings, would we do the same? Would we allow his word by the power of his spirit to infiltrate and transform not just some parts of our life, but every aspect of who we are so that as we leave this place, and as we enter into our, our, our workplace or into our neighborhoods, people would ultimately see him by the way that we live both through our actions and through our words. And so let's pray. God, we come before you this morning and we are thankful just for who you are. We are thankful for your grace and for your love. And we are thankful, Father, that our salvation is a product of your plundering, not our own. But it's by grace through faith in Christ that we are saved. And we are thankful for that. But God, we also pray that you would wake us up. Help us to get off the couch of comfortability. And we pray, Father, that you would give us a spirit of boldness, a spirit of courage to take that step of faith and to be intentional with our friends, with our family members, and to to talk about you, Father. Would we be a people, a church that would not chill out? But instead, would we be known by our love for you? God, you are good. And we love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.